emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Bear SAGE Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we're talking about the passion economy with Adam Davidson, a returning guest, a recidivist guest on the Soul of Enterprise. Hey, Ed, how's it going? It's great, Ron. I got my hair cut today, and it wasn't even illegal. Unbelievable. I, I need that. And I come out here in California. I don't think the uh, shops are back open yet. So I envy Yeah. <laughs> For you, it would be illegal. You'd have to, you'd have to track down one of the, you know, black market hair cutters that needs references to prove you're not the, the popo. I'm going to have to fly or drive to South Carolina to see my dad. So you can do it. But... <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> well, anyway, um, we're going to jump right in with our recidivist guest, Adam Davidson, who's been a staff writer for The New Yorker since 2016. He founded and hosted and ran NPR's Planet Money from 2008-2013, a podcast I listen to regularly. He then became an economics writer and columnist for The New York Times Magazine. He hosts the Passion Economy podcast based on the ideas of his book by the same name that we're going to discuss today. He also co-founded the Three... Um, Three Uncanny Four, a podcast company. So I want to ask him about that. He was a technical advisor on the film The Big Short. Uh, he's married to the journalist and novelist Jen Banbury, and they live with their son in Brooklyn and New York. But I understand he's in Connecticut. Adam, welcome back to the Soul of Enterprise. Thrilled to be back. Yeah, I'm a fan. I'm glad to be on the show. So let me ask you just how are you doing personally with all this COVID and the lockdown and all that, because I know you travel for your, your job a bit, at least, at least you did for the book, for sure. <laughs> so how's, yeah. this, how's this affected you? I I mean, I certainly I'm on the milder impact of, of people who have had impacts. I'm, we left Brooklyn, New York and went to a, rented a nice farmhouse in Connecticut so that my son can run around. And I brought my mom up because I didn't like her being alone in in New York. Um, and it's been, you know, my, my eight-year-old sure wishes there were kids to play with, but <laughs> my wife is teaching him and we're, we're adjusting. I, from a work standpoint, I've never been busier. I keep joking that I can't wait to go back to work so I don't have to work so hard. <laughs> but, um, and I, I kind of was, I, it's funny. And in, in my career as a journalist in my twenties, I just dreamed of getting to a point where people would pay me to travel and then I traveled so much in my 30s and 40s. I'm almost 50 and I'm kind of, I'm excited to travel for leisure, but I'm, I'm okay with less travel. Um, although, yes, it would be nice to go to a restaurant and get out of the house and all of those things. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, we, you know, Ed and I travel a lot and we're just wondering what's it going to be like to step back on an airplane, you know, for the first time, whenever that happens, it's just going to be weird, isn't it? It is. I mean, you know, watching TV shows and movies, you you know, you almost want to scream at, at the screen like, you guys are going to die. You can't. <laughs> you're, you're just walking around like, like it's nothing. 
<laughs> so Adam, you wrote the passion economy, which came out this year, right? Or did, yeah. 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 January. It, yeah. Uh, brilliant marketing to come out in the middle of an impeachment hearing and then quickly followed by a global pandemic. That was well, but you know, other than that, I think the timing's really good. I, I found the book fascinating. I, it was a thoroughly enjoyable, enjoyable read. You profile so many different entrepreneurs and just business owners that are literally following their passion. And I, I guess I'm going to start with the typical question. Why did you write this book and why did you write it now? And we should tell your listeners, you, you are in the book and, um, and you're not in the book as much as you deserve to be because you, un unless you don't want to be in the book and then you're more oh, no, than you deserve. And I'm going to recuse myself from those <laughs> yeah. sections, that section of the book. That, so Ed's probably going to talk to you about that. Yeah, but, 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 um, but you, you certainly in the Verisage Institute had a big impact in me forming my thoughts. Um, basically, as, as a journalist, I, you know, journalists, here, here's a spoiler alert, we tend to cover bad things. And as an economic journalist, there was lots of bad things to cover in the last 15 years or so. And, um, and much of my career was covering the financial crisis. I also spent time in Iraq, covered the tsunami in Indonesia, covered the Haiti earthquake, um, Hurricane Katrina. I was, you know, one of those reporters who would go to wherever there was a crisis. Um, and then, you know, the financial crisis and its aftermath certainly had a huge, I mean, that was the main thing I did for years and years and years. And my work was so dark and, and really seeing how the economy was not functioning well for everyday people, um, at least some everyday people. And then I think it was Jason Blummer, who's a mutual friend of ours, who the first time I was like, wait, there's this other thing going on. It's not all bad. It's not all dark. Um, and in fact, there's a really exciting good news story to be told. And I got to say for who I was and where I was at the time, that was sort of shocking and, and hard to take in for a while. And at first it was just, I met Jason, I met a few other people, but I remember talking to you, Ron, or I guess first reading some of your work, um, our other mutual friend, Tim Williams, um, and beginning to think, oh, th this isn't just a happenstance of a handful of people. This is, this is a real thing that, that, you know, there are new rules to a new economy and there are people who are ahead of the pack and, and see those new rules in really smart ways. And, and that's a story that I would like to be part of telling. And so, um, so that's the long winded answer, which is, yes, I, I don't underplay the, the tough stuff. There is tough stuff going on in our economy. Um, but, but there's some really great news. And, and that part of the story, I think, does get ignored, certainly by, by some people. Right. No, that's what I think one of the most enjoyable aspects of your book is it is such optimism. And, you know, it's, it's easy to pick up books and things on doom and gloom, right? That's kind of the natural human tendency. But so, you know, we have to, we have to kind of teach ourselves optimism. That's why you, you know, the library books are full of, you know, Carnegie and, you know, Tony Robbins and all that. And I just, I just found your book incredibly uplifting just because, well, I kind of idolize entrepreneurs to begin with, but you profile some, some really special ones that are, like you say, following their passion. 
you know, you start out the book with a story that I just absolutely loved. And it was the conflict between two Stanleys. Can you explain that? Sure. This was, this came late to me. I, I, I was, you know, I, so often the intro is, is of a book is like kind of a throwaway or something. And, <laughs> and I was really struggling with the intro somehow. I felt really good about a lot of the stories I had. And my wife kept saying, you know, your family is this story that you're telling your dad and your grandfather, they, they embody so much of what you're trying to teach. And not for the first time, I learned that I should listen to my wife, and um, and she she is a really good journalist and writer and editor, and and so it's it's uh, I really should listen to her, um, and so the the story I tell the accurate I mean based on it being true is that my grandfather I wanted to explain how the economy has changed and this idea that we have gone from one system to another. Um, the tape of, of President Reagan that you just played is, is indicative of exactly that shift. Um, but, but telling it through the story of my grandfather, I thought was, was uh, and my father was a, was a good way to tell it. So my grandfather really was as perfect a, like if you wanted a model of, the perfect American man of the 20th century. That would be Stanley Jack Davidson Sr. Um, he looked a little bit like Reagan and Reagan was his hero. And he um, he was born in 1917, and uh, which meant that he started having kids in the Great Depression, very young, and did what men did. He got a job at a factory that made, um, machine tools that made ball bearings. Um, it's a tough, tough work. It, 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 it's technically the abrasives industry. So, you know, big burly guys with blue over with blue um, jackets on surrounded by mud and the air just thick with, um, you know, no OSHA rules, no, the air thick with, with abrasives. And he was a tough guy in a tough business. Um, and never went to college, but was able to rise to a manager and never worked at another company, got this job at 17, never, you know, left it in his seventies and at, from in the same company. And the idea that he should have a job that fulfilled his innermost desires or reflected who he was and his emotions and, and his sense of creativity is absurd. I mean, he, it never would have occurred to him if you suggested it. Not only would he have laughed, he might have called the police or something and said, there's a mentally ill person running around. And um, so into this home, my dad, born in 1936, um, is just the opposite, the absolute opposite. I mean, from the earliest age, my dad just wanted to be himself. He wanted to be a passionate, creative um, explorer of the world. And in blue collar Worcester, Massachusetts of the 30s and 40s, this meant my dad was gonna end up as a drunk or a loser or in prison. Um, and sure enough, my dad was heading in that direction. He um, his father certainly did not understand him. His his teachers in, in high school, the one of the teachers, my dad said he might want to go to college. The teacher said, you're not college material. And um, my dad found himself at 16, much like his father, working in a factory, bored out of his mind, thinking his life was over. And then a series of events, my dad 
went to the Marines and his best friend in the Marines wanted to be an actor, which was an idea my dad had never even contemplated. And then my dad did get to go to college, did get to become an actor and lived his entire life in Greenwich Village. Well, he's still alive. I don't want to make, he, he, he's, he's still very much alive in his eighties and still working, still doing TV and movies. Um, and lived a life of utter exploration and fun and passion and really finding out who he is and what, what his voice is and who he wants to be. Um, his father never understood him for a minute. He never understood his father for a minute. And, um, and, and I saw their two ways of seeing the world is so emblematic of how we all saw the world in the 20th century, how I was raised to see the world that there's sort of a binary choice. You can have an economically sensible life where you do what everyone else does. You get a boring job in a boring company and you do the boring stuff that you're told to do. And if you don't like it, you shut up and you keep working. Or you live a passionate life full of creativity and personal exploration and you're broke. Or if you happen to be born rich, you get to sort of have the best of both, both worlds. But other than that, you're out of luck. And my dad, I don't want to say we were poor, but we certainly struggled a lot. An actor's income is very unstable, very volatile. And we had some pretty scary times when I was a kid, although my dad has done reasonably well. He's not famous or anything, but he's had a mostly a decent middle-class life, but nothing like his father who died at 99 with um, three homes or four homes around the world and, and real comfort and, and a, um, but no, ability to express himself personally. And that contrast, you know, work is drudgery, but you do it versus work is joy, but it doesn't make you much money. My argument, and Ron, I don't think I'm going to have to fight too hard to convince you of this either, is that's a old way of seeing the world. We don't have to see the world anymore that way. We did then. We actually did. I don't think my dad or my grandfather were mistaken, but the world has changed in some wonderful ways and we can do both. In fact, I would argue we have to do both. We have to find out our unique voice, our unique abilities, our unique uh, um, sensibility and monetize it. And that is the way to succeed in this economy, which means more volatility and fear, but it probably means on average for a lot of people, more income and certainly more happiness and and satisfaction. Right, right. No, it's, it's, it's a perfect dichotomy you know, to follow the money or follow your passion. I just love, I just love the personal story and how you brought it home right to your family. But Adam, unfortunately, I knew this was going to fly by, but we're up against our first break. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to ask TSOE at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. 
Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. His book is The Passion Economy, and Adam Davison is with us here on The Soul of Enterprise today. And Adam, uh, I wanted to, to take you to the next a little further on in the book where you talk about the rules for the passion economy. And the first one I found particularly interesting because at first glance, it appears that it might be something that is contradictory. And I hope you can unpack it a little bit for us. And that is pursue intimacy at scale. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it is, I think sort of in my mind, the, the central economic idea or, economic history idea that that I see as as wrapping together the whole all the ideas of the book, which is and you know, I'll wildly oversimplify the last say 5,000 years of human history um, and try and do it in, in a minute and 14 <laughs> seconds. Um, but you know if, if you think of human endeavor since say the dawn of civilization, um, the vast majority of people um, existed in very small local economies. Uh, most people, of course, were subsistence farmers, and to the extent they had material possessions, they either made them themselves or bought them locally from, you know, a baker or whatever, a, a cobbler. And there was profound intimacy. You know, you go two villages over and name your location, name your place at any point in the pre-modern world, and the bread's different, the cheese is different, the everything, the clothes are different. Um, things are very intimate, very local, very, very specific to that group of people, um, which has some strengths. But if some cobbler in, you know, 1300s rural France, say, or 1300s BCE Assyria had some new idea for a kind of shoe, if it didn't fit in that local intimate market, they weren't going to get any you know, they didn't have access to a large enough network of businesses to or customers to to pursue this new idea. Then you have the 20th century where the core, you know, sort of the long 20th century, the second industrial revolution from let's say 1880 to the 1980s, where the core central drumbeat of the global economy is repetition, mass reproduction, making the same things over and over again. You know, the you can have as any Model T color you want as long as it's black. 
um, everyone on earth gets ivory soap, which I always say is like exactly the wrong soap for everybody. There's nobody for whom ivory soap is exactly the right <laughs> one, but it is really cheap to make and you could spread it all over the world and, oh, sorry, and sell it for, um, you know, uh, the economies of scale, et cetera, that, that so define the, the 20th century. And now, I believe, and I think you guys believe, um, you're able to use the tools of global scale, the internet, um, outsourcing, global trade, all these forces to reach customers all over the world, but for your intimate product. So you can now create that intimate special thing, whether it's a physical thing or a service, and find only those people who most value the thing you have to offer, even if they're thinly spread all over the world. And that is a new thing in human history. No, there is no, no entrepreneur ever has been able to do that, to have access to a market the size of the world without having to build the tools to reach a market the size of the world. And so that is what I mean by intimacy at scale. And sure, and, and the the next two rules talk about value and price, and love to talk to you about them. But that's you know, kind of the subject of th this show, and I think our listeners have heard us talk about them. I want to jump now to rule number four, which is a a takeoff on somebody you mentioned in the book. You mentioned Tim Williams earlier, and something I learned from him is that there are only two marketing strategies. You can you can be intimate, you can be intensely appealing to a small group of people, or moderately appealing to a large group of people. And you say straight out in rule four that you think fewer passionate customers are better than a lot of indifferent ones. So you're, take, you're taking a side in that conversation, aren't you? I am for this audience. So, I mean, the way I think about it is if you really want to be a billionaire, you probably ultimately need a lot of customers. You know, if you're trying to build, it's not like mass production scale has gone away. It's scalier and massier than ever. You know, if you look at Google or Facebook, their constraint is like how many human beings are alive and how many things can those people do in a day? You know, that that's a, they, their constraint is basically all human activity. So it's not like scale has gone away or isn't still a, a way to make money. It's just, they don't need us anymore. You know, General Motors say, or Procter & Gamble needed a lot of people to a lot of factory workers and a lot of marketing people and accountants and bookkeepers to make billions of dollars. Facebook and Google and other um, of those kinds of companies don't need as many of us. We don't have bargaining power. So, so yes, Mark Zuckerberg probably should go for everybody, but the vast majority of us are gonna find a much more comfortable place um, and, you know, maybe you won't be a billionaire, but you could be a multimillionaire. You could do very, very well with a passionate sm but smaller audience. You know, I always think of what economists call the, the, the indifference curve, that, that marginal pricing is you're, you're supposed to price at the point where somebody really doesn't care whether or not they get your product or not. And to me, Sure, that makes sense if what you're going for is scale. But if you're not going for scale, you should price at the point where where you're reaching the people who are freaking outedly excited about whatever it is you're, you're offering and are willing to pay a much more reasonable price. Of course, what's interesting about that, and as you were talking, it, it, it came to me, is, is sure, Mark Zuckerberg goes for the scale of the world and a billion and plus uh, people who are on Facebook, yet it's his platform that allows us to get very specific 
with regard to our targeted ads. Exactly. And that is, I mean, there's, there are these forces that a lot of people are very upset about um, automation, outsourcing, global trade, Facebook, social media, etc. And what I I don't even want to get into, like, are they all good or all bad? They're not all good and they're not all bad. But what they are are tools and they're very powerful tools that we can use. It's um, and, and, and another advantage of that smaller but passionate audience is Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos are not going to care about your audience. You can have a really big business, you know, and probably the biggest business in the book is a chocolate maker that makes you know, is heading towards $100 million a year in revenue, which to me sounds great. I'd be very happy with a business with $100 million a year in revenue. But, you know, Hershey's isn't going to, they don't take a phone call for $100 million a year in revenue. It's just not big enough for them to care. So there's a big healthy space between global massive scale and plenty of customers, plenty of money to have a really good life. And number rule number six, and this is a really important one. I want to quick get this one in and perhaps rule number eight too. So uh, we've got about two minutes or so before our break. And I think this one is so important because of um, the pe folks that I work with, which is primarily accountants and people who are in accounting in departments in an organization. Technology should always support your business, not drive it. I think that's been one of the big mistakes that people have fallen for is that they think that technology is the business and it's not it's it's a, it's a supporter it's a tool as you said so take that apart a little bit more yeah absolutely i i, I think that as technology advances and accounting obviously I mean, the book is half about accountants or a third or something i mean it, it's it's very accounting focused because i find accountants such a great model of this um you, you certainly want to be very aware of, of technology. It's reasonable to be on top of technology, although I have a whole chapter about Amish people that shows you don't have to be on the cutting edge of, te of technology. But again, unless you're Facebook or Google or really on the forefront of massive technological change, it's only going to be a tool. The thing you're selling is that core essence, the the positioning, as Tim Williams would call it, the value, the actual value you're adding. And the technology can make it easier to find your customers, easier for them to find you, easier for you to deliver what you're offering. But the technology itself is just a tool. It's like the roads on the street and the telephone lines and the internet lines. It should not, if, if you're being driven by that business and you're not a modern day Thomas Edison, like you're, you're following the wrong path. And rule number eight, which I also love, by the way, and it is similar to rule number one in that it sounds almost like an apparent contradiction, but I know it's not. In fact, Ron and I have done at least one whole show devoted to this topic. Never be in the commodity business, even if you sell what other people consider a commodity. Absolutely. I mean, the, a commodity is just a, a, a product where you're a price taker, where whether it's wheat or basic accounting, you know, services like I'll just do anybody's, um, you know, tax uh, 1040 for them. Um, a commodity, you're always a price taker. You're not building bargaining power. You're not developing that kind of core relationship. And there are farmers selling wheat and farmers selling cotton. There are people doing things that all of us would look at and say, oh, that's a commodity. But they're wrapping that commodity in a package of 
extra service or um, a, a specific understanding of a specific audience. I have a whole chapter about a pencil company making doing this with number two pencils, the ultimate commodity, as um, and and uh, as Milton Friedman would talk about. And um, so I don't think. Yes, you 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 cannot have a commodity mindset in any business. You must be adding value. That is what you need to do. And adding value is the opposite of being in a commodity business. Yeah, uh, well, our our favorite example of this is the company. Uh, it, I, I don't know if it still is out there, but it was called One Share. That would sell people one share of stock, which would be the ultimate commodity, except that they put it in a frame and it's a gift and right. the number the number one is Disney. So what a, what a great example of decommoditizing even the, the thing that is by definition a commodity, a share of stock. Well, um, Adam, great. Real, thanks for unpacking some of those rules. Uh, Want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website, thesoulofenterprise.com, where we post show notes including and, and previews to upcoming shows. Uh, we do have our show archive out there where you can listen to all 281, I believe, previous shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking about the passion economy with Adam Davidson. And Adam, I was heartened to read what you wrote here. You said, simply pursuing one's passion is not enough. We must pay close attention to the marketplace. And we've had another guest on the show a few times, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. And he thinks the whole, you know, follow your passion thing that you get at the commencement addresses is really bad advice because he says, you know, you have to do something that serves other people and, and something that they value. And then you learn to love it 
over time, because if you just follow your passion, it can kind of sink into narcissism. React to that. Yeah, this is this is sort of the debate. I, I don't think I even really understood there was a passion literature, um, but you learn pretty quickly when you write a book called The Passion Economy. Um, and part of it is it, it's not, I think different people define the word passion in, in different ways. Um, you know, I would say if I had to write the book over again, um, you know, I'm very proud of the book, obviously, but there's a couple points that I would have hammered a little more uh, carefully. So one thing is, I don't think most people are born with a passion or that you either have one or you don't. I certainly don't think that. In fact, the number one question I get from college kids is, I don't know what my passion is. And mm -hmm. I feel like for me, I certainly couldn't have articulated my real passion until I was well into my 30s, maybe my 40s. And, and I still feel like I'm refining it in, as I get into my 50s. Um, so that is one thing I just wish I had made more clear. It's not a binary, you have it or you don't. It's not a thing that exists and doesn't change. Um, on the flip side though, um, you do, passions are not in, I don't know that they're invented. They might be, I think they're a bit discovered. And, um, you know, and, and I think the way to discover them is to do a lot of work jobs and take those jobs seriously and pay a lot of attention to what you're enjoying and what, uh, and what you seem to be good at and what the market is communicating to you. Sometimes the market is just your boss or your coworkers. Um, and for a lot of people, they'll never be facing a market in a traditional sense. They'll never be selling products and services openly. They'll just be an employee. And the passion might not be the specific product. Like, you know, again, to use Jason Blummer, our mutual friend, I think he would have been very happy to have never become an accountant. Like accounting is not his passion. I think his passion is engaging people creatively, thinking about ways to solve their problems. And he could have done that in a lot of other professions. It, and, um, but he had to do it in a profession and, um, and accounting is a pretty good one to do it in. Um, so, I think I, I agree with, with Rabbi Lappin more than I disagree. I just emphasize the words uh, a little differently. Another thing I would say though is having a clearly identified like, oh, here's something I seem to be pretty good at and it's something that other people value to the extent they're willing to actually pay money for it is a hugely valuable thing to know about yourself. It's so valuable that it, might take 10 or 15 years to find, and that's okay, that's worth it. Like if you look back at America or the entire world before say the 1940s, nobody was going to college, nobody was thinking about very few people, I mean, ministers and stuff. I think in 1970, only something like 7% of Americans were graduating college. Um, there wasn't a cultural sense that college was a, necessary process to find what you were going to do with your life. It was a thing that you did if you wanted to be a minister. And I think of whether we call it passion or, or, or your unique skill set or whatever, it's worth finding and it takes a long time to find. It takes well into your 20s, probably your 30s. If you happen to have it earlier, that's wonderful. That's really lucky, but you're rare. Um, but it's worth it. And, and what I would like to think will happen, and I think you guys are part of this, is we'll develop a new language to talk about these kinds of things, just like you've developed a new language to talk about what is the value a, a, a service provider provides, um, so that 
you know, you're not embarrassed to say, oh, my kid's 28 and he still doesn't know what he's doing. You're saying my kid's 28 and he's well on his way to identifying his core passion, his core value add. Right. No, no, I, and, and your passions can change too, can't they? I started as a CPA, which was, I was incredibly passionate about, knew I wanted to do it in, in, in high school, but then started getting into other things as I got older and, and that passion totally flipped on me. Absolutely. I mean, I used to say, boy, I'm so lucky I'm a journalist because a journalist, I mean, I've done theater reviews, I've covered war, I've covered the economy, I've gone to the White House, I've, I've been an international correspondent, like I've been able to do, have so many different careers within this one career. And, but then over time I was like, oh, I think all careers are like that. You can, if you're creative, I mean, obviously you could, you, you, you could choose not to pursue lots of different opportunities, but obviously accounting, there's lots of ways to be an accountant. I mean, you've found a particularly unusual one to become a, you know, let's change all of society's way of valuing things person, which is awesome. Um, so so I, I don't think that's so rare. I think it's rare that in some fields, it's rare that people actually try it, but it's not rare in the world that you can try to shift your passion. I do think shifting, like there's a sense of taking stock of where you are and building on it that I think is just good practical advice. Like if you're 38 and you realize, boy, I made the wrong call. I hate the law. I hate being a corporate lawyer maybe you should still realize there are some skills you have and can you apply those skills without doing all the stuff you hate about that job? By the way, I think every 38 year old corporate lawyer hates being a <laughs> It's been my experience. I, somewhere in the book, you talk about somebody who wrote a list of every everything they were good at, but then circled the ones that they really enjoyed. And you know, obviously that's a little bit easier when you're in your thirties or forties than it is when you're in your twenties but you just also mentioned something that I wanted to ask you about because I get it. I get this question a lot from young people when they say, well, I haven't found my passion. How do I find my passion? How do you answer that to say like a high school student or just, you know, a college student? You know, it's a weird paradox because I think finding your passion, you know, aside from finding, you know, the love of your life is probably the most important thing in the world yet. I think you should not take it that seriously, especially when you're in high school and college. You should try stuff, try lots of stuff and just do it with your eyes open. You should try experiments and not have a big bar. And, the, and depending on your financial situation and, and sort of your position those in the world, those experiments can be getting a job, getting a, a going on a job on a career path or, you know, um, but then the key thing is paying attention to you know, I, I think all of us, once we're in our 40s and 50s, can look back at those early years and be like, boy, yeah, I can see now I was a creative director or I was a, an amazing salesperson in, in utero or I was like, there, you can look back and see those things and, and, and just paying attention to what, what are the things that come naturally to me that I that I enjoy doing, that other people seem to respond to me um, in a way that they're not responding to others. I think that starts helping you match who you are to what the market is. And that's not to say you have to only do things that other people think you're good at, even if you hate them. Obviously, there's a give and take. 
I do want to just go back. Sorry, one thing to Rabbi Lappin. I am not pitching that life is easy and butterflies and roses and um, every. In fact, I would argue if you have a career that you care a lot about, your life might be a lot harder. I mean, I often, you know, think like, what do you what do you want to be worried about at three in the morning? If you're an entrepreneur, if you're a person doing a career, you care. You guys care a lot about the future of service professions. And that's not an easy path. I am not talking about self-indulgent. I'm going to paint my pottery and, and sell it at the craft store. I'm talking about working your butt off and caring a lot and feeling really upset when things don't work out. It might be a harder life in some ways. It might be more hours worked, more heartache, more antacid, more frustration, because you're doing something you really care about. Although in my model of how the world works, that's a better life than an indifferent one. Right. And, and I would agree with that. And I, and I really enjoyed that realism that comes through, especially in your stories. You know, you were talking to Ed about your rule number six, which is technology should support the business, not drive it. And I just have to ask you, because I, I, I thought this was one of the most fascinating profiles in the book. It was Pioneer, the Amish company. What did you learn from them? Because they're not, they're not known for being on the technological cutting edge. Yeah, this is a company run by a very re religious um, uh, uh, Amish family. And I see that Greg LaFollette tweeted, he's a good buddy of mine and, and uh, <laughs> a very, uh, my son and his granddaughter are very close friends um, and FaceTimed together today. Um, the, uh, the Amish, here's something amazing about the Amish. I have a lot of Amish friends. Um, and I remember one of them saying to me and my wife, you think we're simple but we're not simple, you're simple. You just take whatever the latest technology is and you just do whatever it tells you. We look at every piece of technology and we really ask, is this good for us or bad for us? Is this good for our families? Is this good for our faith? Is it good for our values? And that is true. That is something that happens. They don't reject cars because they don't like cars. They reject cars because they spread families out. They break the, the spine of a community. And I would, I know we have to go to a break, but I would say Pioneer is a perfect example of how that approach can actually manifest itself in a really well-run business where the, it, the highest level of lean manufacturing, efficient manufacturing, global sales for a company that has four cell phones and only a small number of people there even use email and their email is way primitive compared to ours, but they're adding real value that transcends whatever technology they're using. Right. No, I, I just love that story. And I, I, you also spent some time at a winery that, and, you know, I always say that wineries, they're farmers, but th they are incredible marketers because they have all this different wine out there and different price points. And it's just fascinating. But, but folks, you're going to have to read the book in order to get some of those great stories. And now I'd like to remind you, you can go out to ratethispodcast.com slash TSOE. Give us a rating. Also, we will post full show notes with our interview with Adam today at the soul of enterprise.com links where you can find his book and other things. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. 
These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And Adam Davidson's book is The Passion Economy, and we are uh, thrilled to have him join us today on The Soul of Enterprise. Adam, I wanted to ask you about something that I noticed you repeat over and over in the book, and it is certainly in the story about you and, and Jason Blummer and Tim and, and Ron get weaved in. And at one point you even say in the book that um, when, when Ron said prices justify costs, that this confounded, uh, it confounded Jason for, and J- Jason, and I'm going to ask you a question. Were you also talking about yourself? Was that a discovery that you made in, in conversations with Ron as well? Absolutely. Um, I, I really want to emphasize that Ron has had a really big impact on on how I see the world. And I this is not naked, uh, empty flattery just because I'm on your show. Like I say this frequently behind your backs and uh, and published it in a book. So so I have I, am, I hope I am credible here. Um, I mean, I think Verisage is a more profound message than maybe you guys even realize, but certainly then I would think the average person would realize. Um, and, and I think uh, because if, if we think of like, okay, there's this exchange, there's a person creating value, there's another person getting that value, but, but needing to recognize that value. And then, but then there's anticipating like, okay, I want to create value in the future that some people I don't know yet are gonna value and how much are they gonna value it? It, it forces you to ask some, some deep and fundamental questions about um, how people live their lives, how, how, um, and, and, and how to articulate, and which I feel like I'm not being particularly articulate right now, um, but how to articulate that value, how to tell the story of your value and their value in a way that they recognize. It's a tricky bunch of things that we don't have a set language for. And, um, you know, we, we think of prices as immutable. We think of prices in a very cost plus way. I find 
almost every time I talk to an entrepreneur, like a smaller, small business person, they just cannot get their head out of a cost plus model, no matter how much I shake them. So I think for some people, it feels unfair to charge more charge unmoored untethered from the cost of producing the good or service without realizing that it is the very act of either charging more or in some cases charging less than people expect that allows you to create that good or service in the first place so it it's it's not pricing is not the thing that happens at the very end of a transaction as a sort of rote quick thing pricing is the profound question in the middle and you know i'm not um i'm not a libertarian like you guys are but i am very influenced by hayek and and sort of the magic of the price mechanism um you know when milton freeman talks about it using the um what's his name reed the um i i find that i think price is a very profound profound um connector of humans in a way most people do not recognize particularly people from my world of the more kind of left of center part of the world. It's not widely accepted or seen. Well, even even the word then, and I, I love the fact that you are a word guy uh, like I am and my dad, and you take apart passion um, and the, the, the understanding of suffering, but the word transaction itself has has this notion and we don't realize it because we don't take apart the word, that the word transaction means beyond the action. Right Be, beyond the action of us exchanging this goods, there's there's something beyond it. It's deeper, and to that end, I want to take you to a, a quote that you say. It's you say, "I happen to be an unobservant Jew and spend little time thinking about God or spiritual things. I found that the closer I adhere to a passion economy approach to my work, the more meaningful my work becomes." And I want to share with you uh, again. Ron talked about Rabbi Lappin earlier, something that he said on our show. Um, I think the first time he was on, and that is that the Hebrew words "work" and "worship" are the same word. And how incredibly profound that is. And it, it seems to me that you've you've gotten to that essence of it in a sense without even knowing it. Yeah, I think the there's something in Judaism, I'm sure it exists in, in many other faiths as well, but that 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 echoes a lot of what we're talking about. Prayer and I mean I remember a, a, a very influential rabbi in my life. Um was telling me, I don't pray every day because I'm dying to pray every day. I'm not, it's not like fun. And a lot of days it really sucks. Like I got to get up earlier than I want to. I got to, it's cold. I got to go to the synagogue and then I'm thinking about the office. But if I don't do that work, I'm never open to those real moments. And, um, and, and, and the, the idea that that connection to God or that connection to a customer is, um, is the way that, that we, connect. Um, and the more thought and effort goes into that, the more you open yourself up to the possibility of profound connection. It doesn't mean it, it's always there or it's guaranteed. So yeah, I like that idea a lot. I had never thought about transaction in that way. I love that as well. Yeah. Well, we only have about two minutes left or so. And uh, well, a little bit longer than that. But and I want to ask you about this. And, and you made a joke about it earlier and said that, you know, releasing a book in the middle of a global pa pandemic was perhaps not the best marketing. Uh, and, and Ron tried to jump in and correct you. But I want to, want you to ask, what are your thoughts on the passion economy in the age of COVID-19? 
I think that it is more relevant. I really do. I think that COVID-19 is doing a bunch of things that um, that speak to the work you guys have been doing, you know, for, for decades um, and the work I've been doing for, for months and years, um, which is honing in on that core value and honing in on the fact that that value is not, it's not a geographic, you know, one way I, I see another way to tell this whole story is, is geography. So, you know, norm, it, 30 years ago still exists, but 30 years ago, very much, I think most accountants were working on um, projects within, you know, 10 or 20 miles, whatever of their office, same for doctors, same for professors, same for everything else. And the more we're able to fluidly and comfortably work with people all over the world, the more we have to add that value and the more we're rewarded for adding that value. And so this experience of, on the one hand, stripping away all of the trappings of modern civilization and making us realize um, how, um, all, all the how fragile it is. But on the other hand, really learning how to communicate long distance, how to do really complex projects with teams across long distances, I think is going to hurdle us forward, you know, several years, decades faster than we would have otherwise towards a world where especially service providers, intellectual workers really are global. And I think for a lot of people, that's going to be really good news. Certainly for some people that won't be good news, but for a lot of people, I think that's gonna be really good news. I also hope that at least some people are using this pause, it's hard, it's scary, it's difficult, but are using it to do that work of looking inward and okay, what am I good at? What, what am I valuable at? And what does the, who in the world wants that? Yeah, the other thing, and you probably have seen this too, that there's several pharmaceutical companies that are working together on vaccines for COVID-19 that were bitter rivals or still are perhaps bitter rivals in other areas. And the technology that enables us to be able to do that, you know, the the genome and all, all those things. And but so we got about 30 seconds, but I'll just give you a quick chance to react to that before we wrap up. Yes, absolutely. I think... Um, this is just an intuitive thought, but it feels like the last four years have been all about division and, oh, wow, I didn't realize just how much I hate everybody who isn't exactly like me. And now it feels like a bit of a correction against that, I hope, I think. Yep. Great stuff. Well, Adam, thank you so much for being a guest on The Soul of Enterprise. We really appreciate you being here and we'll, we'll have, you, have to have you back on a third time because there's, there's so much more I think both Ron and I want to talk about with you. I'm counting on the hat trick. It's a real pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Adam. Ed, what's on store for next week? Next week, Ron, we have our interview with author Connor Boyack, the author of the Tuttle Twin series. Excellent. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. In the meantime, check out thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes up there with our interview with Adam Davidson and his book, The Passion Economy. Also, you can contact Ed or me at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks, and stay safe. <laughs>